Hey, how's it going, New Hope? I want to take a minute just at the start here to speak to the moment, what's going on on our TV screens as we see our streets uh, filled with people giving voice to racial injustice, uh, giving voice to the hope for, for racial reconciliation. I'm so glad those conversations are happening. They're way, way overdue, and, and it, it sparks hope. For those of you part of our community that may be watching that are, are people of color, uh, I grieve with you. We grieve with you. I can't imagine what you have been going through and, and what, what you've had to endure uh, in your lifetime. So we grieve with you. I want to also uh, say that I'm sorry. I want to confess that as a follower of Jesus, as a pastor, as a leader, I, I could have done more. Uh, I should have done more. So I ask your forgiveness and, and apologize. All of us are at different places in this conversation. Uh, me as as a white person, I've not experienced those types of things. And so what I've heard from the Lord in this season is one, to repent as, as I just did, and, and, and it's earnest. And I don't know where you are in, in that journey, but I want to invite you as a follower of Jesus. I want to challenge you as your pastor uh, to repent. Uh, I, this past week on Wednesday, every Wednesday at noon, I lead our, well, we lead our community, one of our pastors, through a time of prayer on Facebook Live. So please join us for that. This week, I led it, and I led us through some prayers of repentance written by the folks at 24-7 Prayer. Many of you responded that that was helpful. So that's online. Maybe that can be a vehicle for you to take time this week to, to walk through those prayers yourself in an attitude of repentance. Secondly, what I've been feeling is just this need to, to listen and, and to learn. So I want to invite you to that. We could all be better listeners and learners. So some of you probably don't know where to begin. Where do you start? I've I've had those same questions in reaching out to my friends of color, my pastor friends of color in the city. I've had recommended again and again a, a book by Latasha Morrison called Be the Bridge. So I recommend that. You'll you'll see a picture of that coming up on your screen. So dig into that. That's a place to start. If you want to go another route, there's this wonderful movie our family watched called Just Mercy. It's the it's the true story of Brian Stevenson. And he is a follower of Jesus. It's a remarkable movie. And I've heard that on pretty much every platform, it's now being offered for free. So that's a, another way you can uh, be a learner. I guess the best way is if, if you have a, a friend of color, reach out to them for a Zoom chat, for if you feel comfortable, a coffee, and just say, hey, can you tell me your story? Uh, I, I want to listen. As a pastor, uh, New Hope, our, our mentality is, has been to try to listen and learn in this season uh, we want to be the, the change that we all desire to see, and especially the change that people of color desire to see. So I've reached out to, to my pastor friends in the city. I serve on a team of pastors that, that helps provide support for, for pastors in the city. And uh, we have four uh, people of color on that team. And we're working together with those churches arm in arm to, to, to listen, to learn, to pray, to plan. How can we make a difference uh, in this area? Uh, so I want to just let you know that as part of our church, we're committed to being part of the change, and, and we're discovering what that looks like and the best way to do that. So I just invite you to that journey. We're all on this journey, and uh, for those, again, uh, of color in our community, we're so grateful that you're part of our church. Uh, we love you. You're beautiful. Let me just pray for us. God, thanks so much uh, for uh, this moment in time. We sense your spirit is working uh, in and through uh, the, these voices being raised, and and finally given a rightful stage to proclaim their hopes and their desires for a country that, that represents a world that represents your kingdom come, where we're not discriminated against because of the color of our skin. 
and uh, I pray that myself, as I listen and learn, could, could be part of that change, and, and those listening uh, today could be part of that change, that our church uh, could be part of that change. I think back to the prayer and the heart cry of Dr. King as he was echoing the prophets of old and quoting them, actually, that, that justice would roll like a, like a mighty, never-ending river of righteousness. Such a great phrase. So that every valley would lift it up, be lifted up and every mountain would be laid low so everyone, everyone could see the glory of the Lord be revealed. And that is our heart and our prayer today. Uh, please uh, enter us, uh, fill us with your spirit, and allow us to be people of change and a community of change to make that a reality in our time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, how's everybody doing? So it's just, woo, there's so much going on. Uh, I was thinking this week that we, we started the quarantine, at least uh, here in the Portland area, around early March. It's been a couple of months, so how are you doing with that? At first, as an introvert, I was like, whoa, this is awesome. I love this. I could just kind of hang out and, and be by myself and, and my family. But quickly, I just felt myself missing all the people I normally see. Uh, the, the, the power of being with people, I, I so miss that. I so miss uh, you. And so th this, this quarantine, that word actually means a state of isolation, has been, has been heightening uh, this 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 thing in us that I think is from God, an image from God to be with other people. And I've heard a lot of people say the church, this whole online platform, and I'm grateful for it, that we can do church this way, but it's the future and we don't even need to worry about regathering. And ooh, I totally disagree with that. If the future of church is just online, I need to find another uh, profession for sure. Because church is meant to be embodied and we're meant to be together. So when it's safe to do so, New Hope, I long to be with you again. I'm, I dream of those days and, and wait patiently uh, for them. It's ironic that the one of the last series we did before the quarantine was called Together. We talked about how we're not meant to be alone and we're made to be together and we're better together. And that's totally true. And this quarantine, I think, has really made me see that to a deeper level of appreciation, the value of, of presence, the, 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 the power of presence. Uh, one of the stories that I've seen playing out and, and I've heard through my friends, I've had a few friends that have lost someone to COVID and literally dropped them off at the hospital and never saw them again. And these stories that we're all hearing of people with COVID, because of safety precautions, they're not allowed to be with the person they love. And that person essentially is, is dying without the people that love them around them. It, it's horrid. And the thing that makes us feel that that's so horrid is this thing, this, this inbuilt desire from God that we're meant to be together. We're not meant to be alone. A story on the opposite side of that that I encountered that gave me a lot of hope and filled my, my heart with joy is the story of, uh, I think, a professor from Troy University. I think his, I believe his name is John Klein. And he's uh, been loving on his wife for 45 years. She's been loving it back, his dear Anne, as he calls her. And Anne got diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease about 17 years ago and has been in the, a nursing home uh, for the last uh, several years. And John's daily rhythm was to work. And then in the afternoon, he would leave and go visit Anne in the nursing home. And he'd sing to her and love on her. And they'd laugh and she'd eat dinner. And she, he would wait till she would fall asleep. And then he'd go home and, and do his life. And that was just his daily rhythm. Well, when COVID hit, all that got thrown asunder and he was no longer able to visit his dear aunt, but that did not stop him. And here's this, you'll see coming up on screen in just a second, this story, maybe you've seen it, 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 it went viral. 
where John approaches Anne's window and uh, sings a song uh, that brings her back, a song that was near and dear uh, to them. So watch this uh, clip. That was incredible. You just, I don't know how you don't cry when you see that. And I think what that's unearthing and is the opposite of what we feel when we know someone's dying alone. We see this beautiful story of somebody seeking out presence. And that's what love is. Love is intentionally seeking out those we want to be with. There's such power in presence. We're not meant to be alone. And we're going to look at that idea today, the power of presence through the story of this man from the Old Testament we've been following, and his name is Joseph. So if you want to turn with me to Genesis 37, Joseph's story is from Genesis 37 through Genesis 50. That's 13 chapters of scripture, which is a lot of real estate given to one person. And I think the narrator, the writer of Genesis is wanting us to pay attention to Joseph's story because his story is my story. His story is your story. And we can learn from that. So let's, let's briefly review uh, the story of Joseph. Uh, this series is called You'll Get Through This, Lessons from Joseph. And we're in our second week. It's going to be a seven-week series. We're also using as a guide Max Licato's book by the same title. We, we stole it. It was Max's title first. And this is our big read. So uh, we are encouraging you to buy the book. It is so excellent. And it will help you deep dive in the series and really have it connect to your heart, a deeper level of engagement. And we're offering book clubs. You can go to a Facebook page and, and join up and start to enter into discussions with other people from New Hope. So I want to encourage you to do this. So review. Joseph is the great uh, grandson of Abraham and Isaac. God called them out and told them they were going to be a great family, great nation to give birth to the Savior of the world. So they're the people of promise. We're following their story essentially through the Old Testament. All, all hope for humanity hinges on this family. So Joseph is the, the 11th of 12 sons. If you remember from last week, uh, uh, his father, uh, Jacob, had, had two wives, uh, Rachel and Leah, and he loved Rachel. Uh, he got kind of tricked into marrying Leah, so that's a complex family situation. Leah was able to give uh, Jacob lots of children, Rachel not to the very end. And so she gave birth to, to Joseph and Benjamin. And Joseph was his favorite. We're told that. He made this special coat for Joseph. And Joseph knew it. He was a spoiled brat. He rubbed it in the noses of his siblings. And we're told three times last week they hate him. So fast forward, uh, they go away, they're hurting. Joseph's at home playing video games, being a spoiled brat in the penthouse. And his father says, go and take, take food to them, check on them, get busy, do something with your life. So Joseph takes off. It's about a 50-mile journey, four to five days, finally encounters them, and he thinks they're just going to group hug him, that he's awesome. He just is blind to this. Instead of the group hug, they strip him down, they throw him in a cistern in a pit. It held water about 15 to 20 feet. So just picture that from the penthouse to the pit. That was Joseph's journey. Now, we have to look at Joseph's journey knowing where it's going to end. And so the, the verse for this series, that if you're going to memorize one verse, I would like it to be, uh, I would like it to be this verse. And the verse is uh, Genesis 50, 20. Genesis 50, 20. And, uh, and, and it's this. So if you, if you can at home uh, turn to this, uh, it says that what, what basically what God, what um, his brothers intended for evil, God intended for good. And that's a phrase for that Max Licato takes. And he frames it like this. In God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. In God's hands, intended evil 
becomes eventual good. We talked about evil exists, moral evil exists. We see that with racism, natural evil exists, pandemics, the world's a mess, evil exists. But God is continually attempting to overcome evil with good. And God has this capacity as a master junk artist, to use that metaphor from last week, to take intended evil and take suffering that comes from evil and morph it and change it into something good, into something beautiful. And that's exactly what Joseph tells his brothers in Genesis 50, 20. You intended evil, God transforms it to good. And so the narrator of the story, he wants us to always keep that idea in mind. So we have to keep that in mind as Joseph's sitting in the pit, what's gonna happen? And so we, uh, we pick back up the story and we're heading into essentially scene three. And so uh, Portia is gonna read scene three for us. Take it away, Portia. Thanks, Portia. Uh, so scene three. So here we have walk with me. Uh, we, we, uh, we've, we've got Joseph and he's, he's, in, he's in the pit and it's kind of a, a head snapping verse coming out of that. The first one that Portia read, we're told that his brothers are now sitting down to eat. So picture this, they, they strip him down, they throw him in the pit basically to leave him for dead and then they just sit down and have a meal. Probably eating the food that Joseph brought them. <laughs> And so they're eating this meal that Joseph brought them from their dad. They're hearing their young brother cry out and scream in pain and distress. He doesn't know what's going on. His world's totally been rocked. That's the scene. And then this caravan approaches. And the caravan's from the east. And they're, uh, uh, Dothan, the city they're in, it's on a major trade route uh, headed to Egypt. And so one of the brothers, Reuben, he's fourth in line, has this idea. And we know from other scenes, Reuben's kind of a conniver. So he's like, or, or I'm sorry, not Reuben, Judah, Judah. So Reuben's off. Uh, Judah's the fourth in line. Judah's the conniver. And Judah has this idea. And he's like, hey, yeah, hey, brothers, listen to me. Instead of leaving Joe in the pit, how about we make some money off of him? So he, he unfolds this plan that they will sell Joseph uh, into slavery. So the brothers are like, I guess Judah's really convincing. He's a conniver. Yeah, it sounds great. So uh, picture Joseph. So he can kind of kind of hear. He's deep down, 20 feet down. He's hearing them eating, laughing, and then he hears the wagon wheels. And he's like, what is that? And then all of a sudden, one of his brothers, I think it was Judah, gets lowered down into the pit. And I could see Judah be like, Joe, just kidding. It's all good. We were just pranking you, buddy. Come on, bring it in. And so he holds on to him. The other brothers pulled him up. But as soon as Joseph emerges, he knows he's in trouble because he sees the slave trade, the, the, the traders. He sees them waiting with expectant eyes. He can look at the rest of his brothers and see their eyes downcast, not making eye contact. And I can picture Joseph trying to run, but he stumbles, he's in rough shape. They quickly grab him and pull him, heels dragging through the dirt over to the traders. So the traders start to poke at him and look in his mouth and tell him to turn around. And Joseph is horrified. He can't believe this is happening. This is worse than the pit. And then the slave traders, uh, hey, you know, 10 shekels. Shekel is just a coin back in the ancient Near East. And the brothers are like, are you kidding me? I mean, look at this kid. He's, he's handsome. He's strong. 30 shekels. And they're, they're literally going back and forth with Joseph right there. And they settle on 20, which, which is probably the going rate for a slave, a male slave, 15 to 20 years old in that time. And then just picture the scene. Just feel it as, you, as if you were Joseph. He's taken and he sees in the background this cage of other shackled humans. 
and the shackles go on his wrists and the shackles go on his feet and he's crying out to his brothers, don't do this, don't do this. Think of dad and they don't listen. And so Joseph, he's, he's off to Egypt. So Reuben, who I mistakenly called Judah earlier, Reuben is the oldest. If you remember last week, he was the one that kind of saved Joseph's life. Let's not kill him, let's just put him in the pit. Reuben's responsible because he's the oldest. And Reuben comes back, he must have been off doing something with the herd, and he's like, he checks in the pit, where's Joe? What what have you guys done? Where's Joe at? And then they, they reluctantly tell him the story. And we're told that he rips his clothes, which is a sign in the ancient Near East of lament, of deep remorse. And he essentially says in the Hebrew, because he knows they're going to have to head back to their father, how will I ever go home again? How will I ever go home again? He knows how much his dad loves him. He knows he's going to hold him responsible. So they come up with a cover-up story. They take the, the cloak that his father made for Joseph, and they put blood all over it and tear it up to kind of stage a scene like Joseph might have gotten ripped to bits by wild animals, and they found it. And they go home. They present the, the, the cloak to to, to Jacob, and, and he, he rips his clothes, and he's inconsolable in his grief. And then there's this last line that Portia read, it's kind of ending the scene, and the narrator wants to know Joseph's story's not over. And, and the narrator tells us that Joseph kind of went, went down to Egypt and traveled down and ended up in the house of Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Huh, not a throwaway line. Something's happening here. Joseph could have been sold anywhere. He could have gone anywhere as a slave. He ends up in in the home of a very powerful man, the captain of the guard for the most powerful person in the world. What is happening? Let's move on to to essentially stage or scene four here. And let me read verses one through five of Genesis 39. Read along with me. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of the household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From that time, he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, The Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So this is the start of kind of a new story in Egypt. The narrator gives us this line that Joseph went down to Egypt. And that's essentially true. A map will pop up on your screen and you'll see the journey from from Hebron uh, to, to, to Dothan, which was kind of going north and then all the way down to Egypt. It was a long journey, as you can see on your map. But that word down is used intentionally. It's a downward spiral for this kid. From the penthouse, the spoiled brat, the favored son at age 17, to the pit, now shackled and taken far, far away from home. His life, essentially, if we were living, it would be like, my life is over. He is, he is spiraling down. He's going down. It's, it's, it's going, that phrase, from bad to worse. Our family loves Chris Farley. And We've been introducing our, our girls to Chris Farley slowly and appropriately. 
And uh, there's this great scene from the movie Black Sheep, if you've ever seen that with Chris Farlane. And maybe you remember it, maybe you don't. But my wife introduced me to a clip somebody had, had doctored and put on Facebook. And it's the scene, you'll see it now coming on the screen. Chris Farley's at the top of the hill kind of looking at it. And then he begins to fall as only Chris Farley can fall. And then, you know, he falls about 100 feet and then he, he lands and he's like, whoo, what was that? And then, wah, and then he slips again. That happens a number of times. It's, it's very, it's very humorous. Somebody on Facebook started adding the last couple months, so May, June, July, where you think, you know, we're done sliding, we're done falling down. It's like, ah, here we go again. And it's even worse. Maybe that's a sense you're having. I've certainly had that on certain days. Like, what else is going to happen over the stretch? Uh, it, it feels like we're kind of spiraling down, and, and I, I would guess that's true for many of you as you're wrestling with, with a lot of the challenges that, that many of us are, are, are facing right now. What the narrator is saying is that was true of Joseph, but that's not what this little, this little portion of Scripture is about. It's doing more. I call this anchor points in narrative uh, Scripture, and it's, it's these kind of points of like, what are they saying here? That doesn't, They're not really telling the story. They're kind of injecting this into the story. What does this mean? And I think this is a very, very intentional anchor point to tell us what perhaps may be one of the most important things that was in the mind and heart of Joseph. Because Joseph is spiraling down, but Joseph didn't throw in the towel. J- he should have. I would have. But Joseph didn't. Joseph rose up. He had grit. Why? Well, he's a spoiled brat. He's soft. It wasn't, it didn't come naturally to him. What was it? The narrator tells us what it was. And again, repeats it. So when you see something repeated in the scriptures, trying to get our attention. So let's go back to those verses uh, 37, one through five. And here's the little, here's the little secret. How did Joseph do it? What was the game changer? And it says, the Lord was with Joseph. It's all caps in your Bible. And that tells us it's the personal covenant name the, the promise-keeping name of God, Yahweh. Yahweh was with Joseph. And then in, in case we miss it, right away it repeats it. It says, when his master, Potiphar, uh, saw that Yahweh was with Joseph. So his master even saw it. Joseph knew it and his master saw it. The narrator wants to know this is crucial. This is, this is at the core of who Joseph was, hanging on for dear life, but somehow this young man rose up and flourished after going down. The secret was he knew Yahweh was with him. And he knew last week, what we talked about too, that this this God, this Yahweh, had this incredible capacity of taking evil and suffering and transforming it into a eventual good. Joseph was banking on that. And so the narrator tells us that because of this mentality, Joseph begins to skyrocket up the corporate ladder. He goes from the field where all slaves would have started. Suddenly, we're told he's in the house. Not only is he in the house, but he's in charge of, of everything. So Joseph went from, from the pit house or, or the penthouse to the pit to slavery. Now he's rising back up again. It's just crazy roller coaster. But the whole entire time, what was the thing that held him fast? This belief that Yahweh was with him. And this Yahweh could take evil and suffering and transform it into good, into beauty. What's true for Joseph is true for you. And it's true for me. That's where it lands in our lives. So let's unpack that a little bit. Uh, Max says it this way. I love this little line in our big read. And and please get the book and read it. Uh, Max is such a great author. But he says it like this. It's a great turn of phrase. You will never go where God is not. You will never go where God is not. This is a prevalent theme in in Scripture. One of the core ideas we see from beginning to end, that God 
is with us. God was with Adam and Eve in the garden. Even when they ran and went their own way, God was with them and he clothed them and he came after them. God called forth Abraham and Sarah and he says, I'm gonna be with your family. It's gonna be a great nation. It's gonna give birth to the savior. He tells, uh, he tells Jacob, he says this, he says, I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will, here it is, I will not leave you until I've done what I promised. Do you think Jacob might've told this to his favorite son? Do you think sometime in all the talks they had, he might've passed this idea on that he heard from Yahweh, I will not leave you until I've, until I've done what I have, have promised. Whew, Joe is clinging to that for dear life in Egypt. You, you can bank on it. We, we see this theme in, in the life of Moses who would come later and, and uh, God's people went up and down and ran from him the whole time he's with them. God told Moses in Exodus 33, 14, that my presence will go with you. My presence will go with you. There's, there's power in presence. And we see this in, in, as he walked with them with the cloud by day and the fire by night, as he, as he said, build a tabernacle and my actual presence will be in the Holy of Holies. And then the temple that came, my actual presence will be there. And then this is why Moses had the courage and, and, and the heart to say this to his people, be strong and courageous. He says, this is one of the last things he tells them, do not be afraid or terrified because of them. Why? Here it is, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. This is on full display when God shows up in the flesh. That's Jesus called Emmanuel, which Emmanuel means, I bet you can guess, God with us. In John 1, John's gospel, he says, Jesus came and this God tabernacled among us. Your, your translation may say he made his dwelling among us. In the Greek, that word means tabernacled, which is a weird word, but it's going back to the idea of the tabernacle and the temple that God was with his people. Now John is saying, here's Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He's tabernacling among us. It's astounding. But this promise continues on that Joseph held on to, that, that, that he held on to for dear life, that we should hold on to for dear life. Then Jesus, he's ascended, death, resurrection, ascension. And then guess what Jesus does? He sends his spirit who lives within me and lives within you and lives within all who look to Jesus for dear life. And then one day we go all the way to the end of the story. I bet you can guess what's coming. And this is what it says in Revelation 21 as John gets this apocalypse and this future vision. It says, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell, what? With them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Scripture's consistently telling us what Max said, we will never go where God is not. Do you believe that? Do you, do you, do you cling to that? Um, I, I, it's, it's not my experience, <laughs> to be honest. I go through much of my day not noting God's presence, not being aware of it. I also carry this idea that that maybe God has removed his presence or God doesn't want to hang out with me because of something I've thought or something that I've done. I bear those kind of shame things in my life. But the testimony of scripture is the exact opposite, is that when we're feeling that way, when we lean back from God, he leans towards us. He's coming after us. The great C.S. Lewis uh, called God the hound of heaven. And I love that idea. I go for walks all the time with our dogs and our girls. And we have a, a three-year-old golden retriever named Zion. And you'll see a picture of her with, with our nine-year-old daughter, Jubilee. Jubilee is Zion's favorite. Zion is Jubilee's favorite. And Jubilee often takes her bike on, on the walks and she darts ahead, as any nine-year-old on a bike will do. And quickly we lose sight. Zion's going nuts. 
because Jubilee's gone and Zion's got a great nose. She's a retriever. So immediately her nose goes down to the pavement and she just sniffs with like gusto until we come upon Jubilee again. She's tracking her. And that's a great image of how God is with us. Even when we run, God comes after us. He seeks us. He wants to be with us. Here's something that we can do to cultivate that understanding. There's this great Psalm 139, these verses 7 through 10. And so they'll they'll come up on your screen. Please do this sometime this week. It's a great practice that will help re-engineer our minds and our hearts to, to understand that God's always coming towards us, not moving away from us. He wants to be with us. And it says this, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise in the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. Now, here's what I want you to do. Take that psalm sometime this week and just take that one line and isolate it. It'll come up on your screen here. If I go blank, you're there. Where in your life, where in your life do you feel like that if you go there, God's not going with you? It's a hard question. It's a vulnerable question. You don't have to answer on Facebook Live. You probably don't want to. Uh, but it's something for you to pray about and something for you to ponder. If, if you go to work, God's there. If you go on vacation, God's there. If you, if you go for a run, God's there. If you go for a hike deep, deep, deep in the forest, God's there. If you're in the throes of addiction, God is there. If you're in divorce court, God's there. If you're in the ICU, God's there. If you're on your deathbed, God is there. We can't shake him. That's what scripture's telling us again and again and again. And a practice like this where we take God's word and we inject our real life experience into begins to cultivate this mindset that is true, that God is there. He will not leave us or forsake us. It doesn't matter. Joseph knew that. It not only kept him afloat, it allowed him to rise up. So if this is true, then, then I think Max says it this way, that God's presence should be our passion. I love that. God's, God's presence should be our passion. I'll say it this strongly. I think a growing awareness of God's presence in our lives is the defining mark of spiritual maturity. The more we become aware that God's around us, that's it. The more spiritual mature we're becoming, the less narcissistic we are and focused on ourselves, and the more we're focused on this incredible God that's inviting us into his presence and in the relationship. Paul says that we should pray without ceasing. That's what he means. The foundation of prayer is a growing awareness of the presence of God right here, right now with us, right there with you as you're listening to this. So how do we cultivate this idea that God's presence is our passion? We see it throughout scripture. We go back to Moses where God promised him, my presence will go with you. Right after this, I love this little little set of verses. It's Exodus 33, 15 through 17. Look what Moses says. I love his mentality here. If your presence does not go with us, don't send us from here. (laughs) How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses is essentially saying, if you don't go with us, we don't wanna go anywhere. And if you're not with us, we're not your people. It's the defining mark of being God's child, that his presence is with us, that we can't shake his presence. Clearly, God's presence was Moses' passion. True of King David, when he did these horrendous sins of of adultery and murder, and he crafts this great prayer of confession and repentance in Psalm 1. Read it when you're in the throes of realizing your own sin. It's such a great prayer. David says this, do not cast your what? 
your presence from me. God, please, please, you know, I, I, know, I know there's ramifications about sin and all that, but please don't leave. Please don't leave. Later, David writes these great lines and there's songs crafted around this line, but better is one day in your house than thousands elsewhere. God's presence was David's passion. God's presence was Jesus's passion. Read throughout the gospel, everywhere Jesus went, he's aware of God's presence in people, in children, in the most vulnerable, in creation, in birds, everywhere. And throughout, Jesus is always saying, hey, time out, I need to go hang with my father. And not that like, that's what he started to hang. He's like, I wanna give more focused attention to the presence of my father. For Jesus, God's presence was his passion. Is God's presence your passion? Is it my passion? No, <laughs> to be vulnerable with you, it's not always. Often I'm more preoccupied with, with who likes my Facebook post and what text messages I'm getting and what the latest news is than I am that the living God is right there with me. And maybe that would help me with some of my restlessness if I begin to, to be more aware of God's presence and less aware of all those other things. Uh, how do we do this? How do we make God's presence our passion? 300 uh, years ago, there was a man who lived in France named uh, Nicholas Herman. He became a follower of Jesus when he was uh, 18, and then he entered a monastery when he was 40, and he took on the name uh, Brother Lawrence of the Resurrection. Of course, you, you would probably know him as Brother Lawrence. He, no one ever knew him. He cleaned pots for all of his time in the monastery, but after his death, he, he, it, these 15 letters he had written were taken and formed this book uh, called The Practice of the Presence of God. And it's one of the, the most read spiritual classics of all time. It would have blown his mind to know that in his lifetime. And it's so simple. Brother Lawrence was devoted to each and every day becoming just a little more aware of God's presence, even in the smallest of things, even in cleaning pots. Brother Lawrence says this, Oh, if we but knew the need we have of God's presence, if we could only see how greatly we need the Lord's assistance in everything, if we could really see how helpless we are without him, we would never lose sight of him, even for a moment. How do we cultivate what Brother Lawrence was going after, this, this passion for the presence of God? Christians through the ages have, have done many things, but one of them is called the daily office, which sounds weird. But all that is, is taking a couple times each day throughout the day at specific times to stop and focus our attention on God's presence. Sometimes it's three or four times. Sometimes it's five or six times. Don't get overwhelmed. My challenge to you is just do it in the morning and evening. Just start, start small. That's what Brother Lawrence would tell us. Just in the morning when you go, just take a minute to be aware of God's presence. Just say, hey God, how's it going? <laughs> I, know, I know you're here, <laughs> I need you. And then at the evening before you go to, hey God, How's it going? And I think as we begin to do this, it will cultivate more of an awareness and it will begin to, 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 to become more often that we stop throughout the day and say, hey, God. In, in Dallas Willard's uh, last book, I just finished reading it. He has this great, it's kind of corny. I'm, I'm kind of, I don't know if I should share this because you may make fun of me, but it's okay. It's been really effective for me. He says uh, that throughout his life, he would play tag with God. And at first I was like, ah, oh, come on, tag with God, that's weird. But it's Dallas Willard, so I gave it a try, and it's incredible. And what he would say is, I would just stop throughout the day, and he said, I would just say, hey, God, I know you're there, tag, you're it. And what that does is, like, I know you're there, God, and I need you to come after me. I don't, I don't, I don't have what it takes right now. Tag, you're it. And as Dallas would tell us, God has, has never lost a game of tag. So uh, try that. These are just a couple practical tools. I've started doing that, and, and corning the society, it's really incredible. At times where I don't know what to do, tag God, you're it. And it just makes me aware that he's there. He loves me. He's coming after me. He always will come after me. 
uh, we've been encouraging to use uh, the, the Lectio 365 app. We do, as I mentioned at the top, a, a prayer time every Wednesday at noon around that. And I hope that you'll start joining us for that. But it's a really, really great app. It's a, a, a visual come up on your screen. Little uh, eight to nine minute things each day, scripture, some guided prayers through the 24-7 prayer people. Really want to encourage you. I, I do it almost every day. And at the beginning of every uh, Lectio 365, it, there's this prayer. And I was walking with the dogs the other day and it came on. I'm like, ah, oh, that is so what Joseph would be praying. And it says this, as I enter prayer now, I pause to be still, to breathe slowly, to recenter my scattered sentence, senses upon the presence of God. It's beautiful. I, I just pause, I breathe, I recenter. I love this, my scattered senses on the presence of God. Hey God, tag, <laughs> you're it. And that little prayer grounds me each day. It settles my hamster wheel heart. So what was Joseph's, what was, what was the thing that unlocked the spiral downward to him to begin to rise up? He's this spoiled brat. He's this soft kid. What is it? Joseph recognized God's redemptive presence in his life. And he knew that God's redemptive presence transformed his suffering. From the penthouse to the pit, to enslaved, to, to slave in Potiphar's house. I mean, his life's a downward spiral. I would throw in the towel. He should have thrown in the towel, but he did not because he knew God was with him. And he knew this God that was with him had this incredible capacity, do you believe it, to take our suffering and evil in his hands and transform it into eventual good. When we go through that, when we're in the pit, and maybe you're in the pit right now, when we're in the pit, we want to look back and just go back to the way things were. Things will never be the way things were. That's just the truth. What will happen though, if we have Joseph's mindset is we begin to look forward and we begin to say, what if? What is now possible? And as we place our lives in the hands of a God who's present with us and can transform evil into good, anything is possible. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your transformative presence in our life. Uh, I, I, frankly, God, I didn't even see uh, what a big central idea this was until I started crafting this message and really deep diving into it. It's everywhere. You so want us to know you're present with us. And there is power in presence. And you're present with us as the God who's capable of taking the worst kind of stuff and the worst kind of intended evil and, and, and the worst kind of suffering and as the greatest junk artist can do, you take the stuff we want to throw away and you say, huh, what could this become? And you weave it into our lives and you make it beautiful. God, as we encounter uh, that suffering this week, as we find ourselves in the pit, may we be asking that question, is this going to break us? Or will we allow this to form us uh, into someone who's more beautiful? And we pray that that would be the case. Uh, we love you and we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen.